Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! Allow me to, I'm going to introduce myself again, because I know we had a few people come in uh, a little bit later, but my name is J.R., and I'm the teaching pastor here at Beaver Creek Nazarene. Uh, I've been a part of this church community for about four and a half years. We came here, uh, my wife Amanda and I came here in 2009. We got married, and then one week later we moved here because we wanted to pack as many life changes into one week as we possibly could. And we were successful with that. Uh, I don't recommend that in the future, but uh, for anyone that's considering all of those at once. But uh, no, we love it here. We've been, like I said, we've been here for uh, about four and a half years. And this class is going to be very different, maybe, probably, from any of the other classes I've ever taught because... Uh, I've never really taught anything like this before, and I'm not totally sure what the format's going to look like, uh, and so that means you're probably not either. People kept saying, what, what's the class you're going to be teaching in January? And I kept saying, uh, I mean, oh, and I, ha- I, would, I have these vague ideas of things that I wanted to do, uh, but I, I've just never done it before. So you get to be my guinea pigs, and we'll all learn together. And part of the reason I'm telling you that is because I, I really deeply desire your feedback. If there's things that, that aren't working for you that you don't understand, uh, I, I need to know that because uh, I'm trying something new and I'm trying something that hopefully is going to be really engaging and fun and helpful. But if it's not, <laughs> I would like to know that sooner rather than later so that, uh, so that we can fix it as we go along. Uh, so even if we make some mistakes early on, hopefully we'll correct them as we go forward. So let me give you a very small nutshell of what I'm hoping to accomplish in this class and why it's so important to me and, uh, and then we'll get into what we're doing tonight. So I grew up in the church. Uh, I was going to church in the womb. Uh, and there's, there's never been a time that I was really not active in some kind of a faith community, even all through college and all of that. Uh, and I'm a, what you would call a nerd. And so like studying and learning is, has always been entertaining for me. It's always been fun. It's always been like a fun use of my time. So I have, for most of my life, been captivated by the Bible. Uh, but even early on, uh, I ran into a lot of the same problems you guys do, I assume, when you read the Bible, which is that some of it's just really, really weird, uh, and it doesn't make any sense. I tried to, as a, as a youth group kid who wanted to set out and be the best youth group kid possible, read through the whole Bible in a year, and I would start in Genesis, and I'd get all the way through like Exodus and the Golden Calf, and then that, like after that is when all the laws start in, and I kind of started getting bogged down. But I was like halfway through Exodus at that point, so I could push through, you know, finish. But then you get into Leviticus, and are you ki- like, you know, kidding me? Like, and I just none of it made any sense. I tried my hardest to like apply it to my daily life, but I, I didn't know how to do that. Uh, and and the few times I managed to navigate my way through Leviticus, you hit numbers, which had a couple of stories in it, but mostly it was a bunch more rules, and, the, and, and I never even made it to Deuteronomy. I mean, that, that was my experience with trying to read the Bible and trying to understand. So, you know, I would, like, sort of hover around the Gospels, because those were safe, and Jesus would do things like I expect him to, like, talk about the golden rule and tell, you know, parables and things like that. And I was like, okay, okay, and, you know, Paul, pretty confusing, but you could kind of follow, he had some arguments, and he'd say some nice things, and okay, well, whatever. Um, but the whole Bible as a book really remained very impenetrable to me until I went to Bible college. Uh, and I, I got a degree in essentially New Testament theology. And so I got like college courses on how to read the Bible. And that was what really helped me get to the place where I felt like I was comfortable with it. Uh, but then there's this problem of like, you know, not everyone can go to Bible college and be a pastor. Like m- most of you have all kinds of other jobs and all kinds of other vocations, all kinds of other callings. Like 
I really actually don't think God calls everyone to be a pastor and go to Bible college and like work at a church. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, what, what, how would everything else get done in our cold culture, you know? And so there's, there's always been a divide, not always, but for a lot of the church history, there's been this divide where like the pastors are sort of the ones that know what the Bible says and everyone else just sort of is, you know, figuring it out or asking their pastors, which some pastors really like. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when, I was at, when I was in graduate school, I was teaching undergraduate students, and we were, I was teaching like introduction to the New Testament, introduction to the Old Testament, things like that. And we were, I was teaching basic introductory Bible stuff to 18 and 19-year-olds. And there are none of them in here, so I can tell you this. Like, they're not a particularly bright group of people. Like, they're okay, like, they're normal smart, but, like, they're teenagers still, right? And I, I thought to myself, as I'm working in a church, okay, if 18 and 19-year-olds can learn these things, there's no reason that everyone else in the church can't learn them, too. I mean, these are some pretty normal, basic principles and things that, that we can learn and, and that make understanding the Bible way easier, you know, it gives you like a framework and a balance. So that was where my passion for teaching the Bible and teaching people how to understand the Bible really came, kind of began. Uh, what I really enjoy now is helping people connect the dots between the cultures of the Bible and the cultures of today. Because we are separated by 2,000 years, at least, sometimes 3,000 years of history, of language, of culture. There's lots of barriers between us and the people of, of the scriptures. But they're people just like we are. And they have the same kinds of questions and concerns, basically, that we do. They express them differently, but, but they're the same kinds of questions. And so the, the, the answers that the scripture gives and the ways that the scripture formed them are, are available to us. We just sort of need to learn how to speak their language. And that's what this class is hopefully all about. We're going to try to look really carefully and closely at the world of the scriptures and then really carefully and closely at the world of today. So we're going to be talking about movies and music and TV shows and books and some of them you may have seen or may not have seen or read or heard or whatever. And I'm going to do my very best to help us all engage them together. But the purpose of all of that is to say, look, the same kinds of questions that people are talking about in like the Hunger Games, for instance, are actually themes and questions and topics that the Bible talked about too. And so it's interesting to me that the Hunger Games trilogy, which is a series of young adult fiction books, if any of you have not heard of them, that are now a wildly successful film franchise. So that means that like millions of people are listening to what these books are talking about and, and what these movies are talking about. And the Bible's talking about the same kinds of things. And a lot of people just don't realize it because the Bible has so many barriers to understanding. And so I'm, I'm going to, hopefully in this class, I want to help you tear down some of those barriers and kind of understand the world of the Bible better. And hopefully what it will do at the end is it will make God's activity in our world today easier for you to discern. You'll be able to see, oh, okay, I see how these spiritual themes that are being talked about in, I don't know, the new Bruce Springsteen album that comes out in a couple weeks. He's probably going to talk about some spiritual stuff because he always does, right? Well, the Bible can also talk about those things and we can actually have dialogue with them, and then there can be some really cool spiritual conversations that happen. If that still all seems impenetrable, hopefully by the end of tonight it will seem less impenetrable. So uh, let's get started. We ready? All right. Uh, first of all, at, at, uh, in each table has one of these little uh, sheets there. Many of you who were here early were sort of looking at them and identifying them. I'm going to give you a minute, and as just a table, the four or three of you, how many are at your table, see how many of them you can name. And I'll be super impressed if anyone can name all of them. So go ahead, take a minute, and then we'll come back together. 
Okay. What's this first symbol with the, the five rings? Olympics. Anyone get stumped on that one? It's coming up if you did. Don't worry. Now you know. Now you know what it is. Uh, how about this little guy right here? Uh, this is actually just a plus sign. Yeah. You probably overthought it. <laughs> good job. Yeah, very good. Okay. Um, how about this one over here on the side? Pepsi. Very good. How about this little guy right here? Yeah, it's like a no littering, recycling kind of, yep, good. Uh, how about this one over here, the McDonald's, McDonald's the Golden Arches? Uh, what about that one in the middle? Nope, this is actually Dongfang Motor Corporation, which is one of the largest automobile manufacturers in China. Okay. Yeah. Um, how about this little guy down here? Very good, I'm proud of you guys. That's very good. Um, how about the Bluebird? Good. Uh, how about this one on the bottom down here? It is Carrefour, which is what? Yeah, it's sort of like the Target or Walmart of Europe. It's all over Europe, okay? Why do you know that? Okay, very good. All right. Um, how about the creepy clown ice cream guy in the middle? Jack in the Box. Who, who knew Jack in the Box? Okay, so who, who had no clue? Who was just scared? Right, okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, um, if you want to have nightmares, get on YouTube and look up Jack in the Box commercials, and he's just very creepy. Um, okay, how about the uh, little check marky thing? Nike. Nike, yeah, I didn't want to call it a swoosh because I would give it away, right? And then how about the uh, rings at the bottom? Audi. Audi, very good. Okay, now, what are we doing with this? You might be asking. Well, uh, these are all symbols, uh, with the exception of the Chinese uh, car company, I, which I gave you the initials because I thought maybe that would help some of you out. Um, but there's not, a, there's not a word or a letter on, and the arches are kind of them, I guess, right? But there's, there's no words. And yet, we look at these things and we intuitively know what they are, assuming, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, and, and that's assuming that we were a part of a culture that had those. So if you have never been around a jack-in-the-box, you had no clue what the creepy ice cream clown face guy was, right? If you have never been in Europe or lived in Europe, then you probably had no idea what a car for was, right? And since apparently none of us have ever been in China, we, that, that was unfamiliar to us, even though Audi, which is a German manufacturer that's made its way over here, is familiar to most of us. Most of us are able to figure it out. If I put on a Chevy logo or something like that, probably we, uh, everyone would have recognized it. And so that's, that's an introduction to what I'm calling for this a symbolic universe. And what I mean by that is that we all conceive of the world in certain ways. We have pictures of reality that exist in our head, and we're going to be unpacking those not just today but through the rest of the course. And the thing that's interesting about symbolic universes is they're not, they're not like an absolute picture of reality. I mean, they're, they're the way our culture understands things and the way our culture sort of made things work. So if you know, for instance, our interstate system, uh, one of the great things about our interstate system is that the exits are numbered according to how many miles are left or how many miles are to go in a state. So when my wife and I are driving from Ohio back to Missouri, where we're from, and we cross into the godforsaken state of Illinois, no offense anyone who's from <laughs> Illinois, right? We can count down how many miles are left before we get out of that treacherous city, state on I-70 because the interstate numbers are counting down. 
Now, I can't tell you how many people I've been in a car with, and I've mentioned, oh, we only have 62 miles left to go, and they go, how do you know that? And I say, well, because it said 62, and they're like, what? What? And they, they didn't even know that this whole symbolic system was in place on our interstates and with our exits. And so I, I'm, descent, I'm dropping knowledge on them you know, from out of heaven, and it's, I've changed their whole life, their driving life, and made it so much better, as I felt when I first learned that. Right? I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's kind of a cool thing, and it makes things easier and all that. When I was, I, uh, when I was 25-ish, uh, my best friend was living in London at the time, and I went to visit him. And one day he had to work, and so I thought I would be adventurous and set out for one of the, I think it was the British Museum, which is where England keeps all the things they took from all of the other countries that they were colonized. So you can see things from all over the world that London has that they're not giving back to places that they took them from. Uh, So it's a cool place to go. And he said he gave me some very explicit instructions for taking the buses and the, the, the tubes and everything to get there. And on the way back, I got lost. And... It was amazing to me because I, I knew the name of where I needed to go. Like, I knew where we were staying. But I couldn't get there. I couldn't because I didn't understand the bus system. And I actually, even though we all, in theory, spoke the same language, I could not communicate with the, the British people that I was encountering in enough of a way that they could understand where I was trying to get to or that I was even lost. And it was a very alienating feeling. You know, I felt completely out of, out of place. Uh, Compare that with a city where if, you, if you've been in a town where you've grown up your whole life and you know the streets backwards and forwards and probably if someone blindfolded you and drove you around, you'd still have like a sense of where you are. Right? Like I, was, I was totally out of place. I was totally lost because all of, all of the symbols that the city gave me were lost on me because I didn't understand them. And so I just, I just I felt dumb. I felt scared. Uh, I felt pretty nervous. I was like, well, I thought, it would, I thought I could just ask someone for directions or get in a cab and say, take me here, but apparently you can't. Uh, and so I didn't know what I was going to do. I eventually, of course, found my way back, obviously, because I'm here. Um, but, but any of you who have, who have done any kind of traveling or who have lived in a culture that was not the culture that you grew up in have probably had that same kind of experience of being a stranger in a strange land, of feeling out of place and a feeling lost and a feeling confused and even scared. And I have a, a suspicion that when we read the scriptures, that can be the same kind of feeling that we get because when we read the scriptures, we are entering into a foreign land. And there's a whole, there's a whole different way of looking at the world that these peoples had that we don't anymore. Um, now, obviously, some things are consistent, but a lot of things aren't. And largely, it goes unexplained Sort of like when I'm driving on the interstate, if I talk about how many miles we have left to go, I don't explain the entire interstate system and how the numbering works and everything every time. I just go, oh, there's only 62 miles left, and everyone else assumes how it works, and we all go along. And the Bible does a lot of the same thing. It just kind of assumes this symbolic world that these peoples all shared, and it doesn't bother to explain it to people who are foreign to it, us, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 years later. And so we're sort of left on our own. And part of what you get, you know, like if you go study at Bible college or spend a lot of time reading blogs and stuff online, is you get some of that deep knowledge of that. Um, but we just kind of have to figure it out. And so what we're going to do in the course of this class, hopefully, is kind of try to dig at the symbolic universe of the Bible and say, how did they understand the world? What were some of the like underlying assumptions of the way reality worked that they had that we don't? And then what are the what are the corollaries for us today? You know, like what are some of the what are some of the ideas that we have today? So, for instance, a, a really weird and fun and pretty unimportant one is, for us, 
think about this question. When, when does the day start? When you wake up. Okay, that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that answer, right? When you wake up, when, when else? I second that. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That was a comical one. When's sunrise? Uh, Sun, but it, really? After midnight. Midnight, right? I mean, that's when the clock turns over. That's when, when does it officially become the next day? We, we have this, now, now let's, let's push on that because obviously we've already gotten there. Does that make any sense at all? Like, not really. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, yeah. Now, and, and of course, the clock system that we have is based on some, you know, mechanical clocks, things that can measure those kinds of time that they didn't have in the ancient world. So, for instance, in the Bible, in the, in the Jewish worldview, does anyone know when the day started? It started at sundown. The day started at sunset. So this is, for instance, why in Genesis 1, when it's talking about the days, it says, you know, on the first day God created light, right? Let there be light, and there was light. And then it says this thing that it says every time. There was evening, and then there was morning the first day. And that's because it, now, now, I always read that as a kid, and I was like, but evening comes last. Like, morning's first, and then evening. That's how a day works. Everyone knows that's how a day works. Like, duh. You know, but yet here in this in the Bible, for no reason that anyone ever explained to me when I was a kid, no matter who may, how many times I asked someone, like weirdly enough, it's like evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. And if you know that, you start paying attention all the way through the Bible, you actually see just little places where it just mentions things that way. You know, I pray to you night and day. Well, we would say we say day and night, right? And we do, and we never think about it, and it, it never sticks out until someone points it out to you. But you notice, oh wow, here's like a again a pretty unimportant instance of a different way of seeing the world, of a different way of counting time, right? And, huh. And so that, when, you know, when you start to see things like that, you're like, well, what else is there? And are there things that maybe make more difference or are there things that are more important? And it starts to make the Bible seem a little bit less foreign. You're like, oh, okay, these things aren't completely incomprehensible. They're just different. And if I can begin to learn how the people in the scriptures saw the world, I can see that, you know, they just had expressions the way we do. You know, they would have never said 24-7 because they don't think of the day as being broken into 24 separate hours. We do because we have clocks that measure them that way. But that's an artificial way of measuring time that our culture, obviously, is very connected to. Um, but, you know, lots of cultures throughout history just used times of day. They used, like, mid-morning and noon and things that they could kind of tell by the time of the sun and the stars and stuff like that. And so you see that. You see that. And, you know, when it's talking about the times of Jesus' crucifixion, it talks about the third hour or the ninth hour. You know, and these are like periods of time kind of in the day. So that's what we want to push on in this class. We want to push on some of those differences and how we can build the links between the way we see the world and the way they saw the world so that we can understand the Bible better. But before we can go into the Bible, we need to do a little bit more work on our own symbolic world. So I have some more fun exercises for you. First of all, pictures. Some of you are excited because you're artists. Others of you are like me who are not artists, and any of you who have had my classes before know that about me. But I want you to draw a couple of pictures. Uh, these are on your sheet. And I, I intentionally left these vague on purpose. Okay, So don't, ask, don't say, do you mean? I didn't mean anything. I meant what I wrote. <laughs> so first of all, I want you to draw a picture of the government, okay? And then I want you to draw a picture of family. So I'm going to give you about five minutes. 
Some of you who are perfectionists, sorry. Um, if you don't have a pen, there's some pens sitting back on the counter back there. I, I got some extras for you. But draw a picture of the government and draw a picture of family. Okay, now, this is going to be the best way to do this. Go ahead and flip back around in your table groups and, and compare your drawings. And I, Listen, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not giving out any art awards, and I promise you, none of you is worse than I am at drawing, okay? Uh, here's, here's what I want you to look for. Here's what I want you to look for. Look for the, the, the similar symbols that you guys, guys have, and then maybe also pay attention to things that other people drew that you never even like thought about okay that you're like oh oh that's interesting or that's a little crazy or whatever okay uh so i'm just going to do it for about a minute for both drawings compare them and i want to hear what your observations are okay tell me uh don't spin back around yet we're gonna do one more little bit of group work um before we before we come back together uh but tell me what were some of the things that were common about your government drawings what were some of the common symbols White House. Buildings, White House, okay. Things that were supposed to be White Houses, probably, yeah, also, yeah. What else? Address of the White House, okay. What else besides the White House? Or, like, buildings? Okay, anyone draw the three branches? Yeah, okay, yeah, a few of those. I figured that might be in there. What else? Gavels, okay. Okay, flags. Good. Did okay. Did the uh, animal farm kind of, yeah? <laughs> Did anyone draw elephants and donkeys? You got one person? Okay. Uh, that's okay. Hey. Did anyone draw, did anyone draw like a local or a state government or did everyone go, okay, a couple, couple, one person? Okay. Interesting. So most of us, when we think of government, we think of the federal government here in our country. Uh, we think of the White House, right? Okay. Just observation, right? We can say the White House, and we mean all kinds of things. Uh, we can we can say all, uh, you know, pictures of donkeys and elephants, that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what about family? How about that? Stick figures, <laughs> lots of stick figures. So so you, you draw you drew persons, people, and dogs and pets. Okay. What else? Anything else? I did a tree. A tree. Okay. Yeah, family tree. Good. Very good. How many of you mostly drew something that represents your own family? Exactly. Okay. Anyone, anyone not? Anyone go something more abstract? What did you draw? I drew Christ. Uh-huh. And then man. Uh-huh. And then woman. Okay. And then the rest. Okay. So you did like the whole human race, the whole human family. Okay. Interesting. Anyone else do something different? Yeah, it was more of an org chart. It's like a family tree, kind of a, not an actual tree though, but like the chart. Okay. Very good. Okay, so most of us, well, okay, so I'm curious, those of you who drew your own families, what, was it like your nuclear family? Was it the extended family? What did you do? Okay, most of you did nuclear family? Okay. And pets. And pe yeah, yeah, pets. Well, of course pets. <laughs> That's part of the nuclear family, right? Um, those are interesting things to observe that we will not be coming back to for a few weeks, but we're going to be talking about government. We're going to be talking about family because the way we see those things, the way we represent them, 
with symbolically, not only when I specifically ask you to draw them, but also just the way that we kind of end up thinking about them in our minds are very different from the way the ancient world did. And when, so when we read things like family or um, you know, ruler or something like that in the Bible, they probably had very different connotations. They would have drawn very different pictures than we would. And so that's, and those are interesting things for us to talk about. And sometimes it's hard to see that until we see our own viewpoints first. And we don't usually see our own viewpoints because they're our own viewpoints. And of course, they're the most sane, normal, rational viewpoint to have. And any thinking person would agree with me because, duh, right? I mean, that's, we never say that out loud, but that's how we think about it, right? That's, um, our viewpoint makes the most sense to us or it wouldn't be our viewpoint. Um, I've met very few people in my entire life who are like, yeah, I know the way I think is totally irrational, but I'm going to stick to it. So, um, yeah, that's just the thing. So the last thing I want you to do in your groups, uh, and I wrote these on your paper too, but I also tried to draw them, and you'll see. There we go. Um, I have three symbols for you. Uh, language counts as a symbol, by the way, technically, so we're going to do that. First, and I want you to, in your groups, I want you to spend a minute on each one, and I'll call it out for you. And I want you to, to give me as many meanings as you can as a group. You don't have to, like, yell and talk super fast or anything like that, right? But just push yourselves for each of these three things, okay? So this is, this is meant to be the golden arches of McDonald's, okay? If you don't like this picture, you have the one on your table. This is the phrase, the eagle has landed, okay? And then this one, this is a cross, okay? So I want you to imagine in your group for the next three minutes as many different meanings as possible for each of these. Okay, what, and, and another way to think of it might be this. What does it mean to me? Also, maybe what does it mean to my parents or to my friends or to someone from a country in Africa? Or, I mean, just try to put yourself in as many different people's shoes as you can and say, well, what would it mean to a person in a different socioeconomic class? What would it mean to a person from a different country? What would it mean to a person who is older or younger, a person of a different race? I mean, just be creative, right? There's, there's, literally, there's no right answers right now. We're just asking questions, okay, and trying to trying to brainstorm meanings. So, uh, on your mark, set, go, golden arches. You have a minute. Yeah, do it as a do it as your table group. What are some of the meanings of the golden arches? Okay, means fast food. Means what? Metro stations. Okay. Okay. What else? What are some other meanings of the Golden Arches? Cheap food. Dollar menu. Dollar menu. First job. First job. Success. Large corporation. Large corporation. American culture. Okay. Second to Subway now. Oh, is it? Second to Subway. Over a billion served? <laughs> or is it billions and billions now? I don't know. Billions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Okay, yeah. not healthy. Fat and cholesterol, okay. Capitalism. Capitalism? Pit stop. Pit stop? Food? <laughs> Good or bad? International. Oh. I just thought of murder. Okay. <laughs> so a lot of beef. I said Mickey Mouse or Mighty Mouse or you know M. You know the characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
preschoolers first identification mm-hmm. with symbolism yeah. in the real world. Yeah, is uh, McDonald's, right? The Ronald McDonald, yeah. My favorite is always the Hamburglar, but Ronald McDonald's a close oh, yeah. second, oh, you know. Toys, Happy Meals, right? Yeah. The Ronald McDonald House, yeah. For some, for some families in particular, that can have a very powerful meaning, right? Oh, two ways of bread. Yeah. Ooh. Convenience. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. Good. How about the eagle has landed? Okay. Very good. Race. Race. Space race. Success. 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 What's secret service? Secret service. Okay. Good. Government money has hit the bank account. Okay. Good. Yeah, I was. Did anyone think of an actual eagle first? A few of you. Okay. <laughs> now, now, that's worth stopping and, and thinking about, right? This is a phrase, it's four English words, and one of them is a bird, right? And nearly no one in the room associated these four words with the bird, at least initially, because this particular phrase has become such a powerful symbol in our culture. Now, you can imagine someone from another culture who's just learning English, who learns this phrase, would be so confused by everything you all just said up until the last couple of things, right? They would, they would say, what does this have to do with the moon landing? Birds can't fly to space, and they can't live on the moon? Like, you all are crazy, right? And yet, this has become shorthand for us for a whole number of different things. And you can, you can imagine the translation issues that come up, right? Because we have a whole set of cultural symbols that no one in here had to explain to anyone else, Right? We all just sort of knew about them. Um, in fact, we even added a layer to it. I heard people over here talking about the moon landing hoax theory. Right, So for some people, this is like deception and lies and ignorance and sheeple just believing what they're told. Um, so, have you been to the crater? Yeah, that's right, right? Have, I have never... That's right, that's right. See? Here we go. Um, okay, so that's fun, right? All right, let's go to the cross. What are some meanings of the cross? Hope. Christianity, hope. Suffering. Suffering. Medical. Medical. Jesus. Jesus. More to come. Okay, more to come. I heard someone say like an intersection. Intersection. Right? Crossroads. It is an addition sign. Yeah, like a plus. Sort of. It's a symbol of death. Okay. Uh huh. Good. Jewelry. Jewelry. Yeah. And a tea. A tea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yep. What about what would this have meant for someone who maybe lived in the first century Roman Empire? Torture, Torture fear, crucifixion, rebellion. Government. Government. Yeah. This would have been, you know, you hear a lot of people comparing it to the chair. What's that? Humiliation. Humiliation. Yeah, very good. Um, what would it? What's that? When? How so? Because they were always burning. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. It was a symbol of power too. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. What would this have meant to someone living in the Holy Land in the Middle Ages? Yeah, <laughs> hide. <laughs> Good. So, so all of this is to hopefully help you see symbols. You know, it kind of also looks like a um, cemetery thing. I yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. And, and to ask if any of these, if we'd written all of the things that you set out, and to ask which one is right, is a silly question. Because the whole point of a symbol is that it can hold lots of different meanings, and it's always, always, always dependent on the culture that is interpreting the symbol. And so, and, 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 and as much as all, I mean, look at the, the, the symbol sheets you had on your, on your table that you went through together, all the three, we could have done this with all of them, on, you know, and had similar lists, right? What does the Olympics mean to people? Good, you know, who knows, like tons of stuff, right? Um, the same is true of the world of the Bible. They lived in a symbol-rich culture. They had the same kinds of symbols. They saw the world in the same kinds of ways that we do. They were, they were different symbols, but they worked the same way. They had the, the multitude of meanings and all that kind of stuff. And no one bothered to explain it to anyone writing or reading because they all knew it. It was all assumed. It was all, you know, uh, just like none of us had to explain this to anyone else. We just all kind of knew, well, that's not a bird. That's a, that's a spaceship. And when you say it that way, it sounds silly, but we all knew. No one had to explain it to us, right? And so what we're going to be doing is the hard work of saying, well, how did they see the world? And, and what were some of the meanings that these symbols had? And we're going to spend some time with some of those biblical texts and say, okay, well, let's take this one and let's talk about what, they, what, what was going on here and what did they mean and what did they, how did these symbols function? How did this symbolic world work? And then we're going to bring it forward into today. So it's a lot of steps. Hopefully it's going to be fun, though. Uh, hopefully it will be energizing and entertaining. And again, what, I'm, what, I, what I tried to demonstrate here is you guys all already do this. Nothing that we're going to be doing here is stuff that you're not already capable. You do it without even thinking about it all the time. They're just with symbols that you're used to. What we're going to be introducing are symbols that you're not used to. And so there's a little bit of a learning curve, but you can do it, obviously. You just prove that you can do it. Okay? So I want to end the rest of our time tonight by looking at uh, one of the pretty basic structure uh, symbols in the Bible, and that's the way they saw the whole universe. So that's on like page four or five or something like that. There's a big picture of space at the top. So when we think of the universe, what do we think of? What are some of the, you know, if I say universe, okay, galaxies, solar system, nebula, nebula black, holes. black holes, yes, birth and death, birth and death. okay, no end. no end, infinity, Planets? No one's saying aliens? Come on, y'all got to throw me on here, right? Come on. Star Trek? Yeah, there we are. Now we're talking. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we think of, right? I mean, when you, think of, when you think of the Earth, you think of the little blue ball, third, third rock from the sun, right? I mean, that's, that's what we are. You all have seen the solar system. You probably had to make a model of it in school at some point. Um, that's, that's, that's how we understand the universe to be. And when we say things like Earth, or the world, or the universe, or the heavens and the earth, even if we're even using biblical language, those are the things that are sitting in our minds. And we never even stop to think about it. Like, none of us have probably ever wondered if there's really a solar system. We just kind of were like, well, yeah, I mean, all the science books say it. And I've never been to the moon. I assume you can go there. 
Yeah. I mean, none of us ever question the nature of reality that's been given to us. Probably, I mean, not on any, like, serious level. And why would we? I mean, serious, why would we? Everyone agrees that it's the way it is, right? And the people that don't, we think are a little bit kooky. And that's the same, the same, you have to understand that's the same way that it was in the world of the Bible. They had a very different worldview from us. They didn't have the scientific advancements that we do, and they saw a very different kind of a world. But no one questioned it. No one wondered if it was right or not. They just, that was just how the world was, and that's how they wrote and talked about it, the same way we write and talk about ours, even though I don't think we have any astrophysicists in the room. If we do, I want to find out more about what you do afterwards because I'm kind of obsessed with space. But <laughs> you watch that ancient alien show? <laughs> I've seen it before, yes. Okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so, so what we want to ask is what, what, how did the ancient world understand the world? When they looked at reality, when they thought about the world, what did they see? And we're going to talk more about this next week when we get into talking about the seas and stuff like that because it kind of ties into creation. But I put on the bottom of your page a little diagram of a map of the ancient world. And this was, this was more or less how just about everyone in the ancient world saw the world. doesn't matter what culture you were from or anything like that. The, the, the maps that we have that people drew back then, because they did the same thing we do, look largely the same. And so uh, scholars call this a three-tiered universe. So think of it like a, I don't know, like a layer cake or something like that, right? But there's three, there's three levels. The top level is heaven, and that's where God or the gods, I mean, obviously, if you're Greek, right, on Mount Olympus, you had, like, all the Zeus and all the other gods, right? But uh, in the Hebrew world, that's where Yahweh lived. That's where God lived, was in heaven. And it was, I mean, there was a, a temple and a throne room. I mean, you, you, if you've ever read any of those biblical texts, like, it was basically this, this whole, like, divine palace, right, that was above everything, above the sky, above the stars and the sun and the moon. It was above everything. It was on the top, highest level of reality, okay? And then under everything was the underworld. So, again, in the Greek world, it was like Hades, right, where... Uh, Hades lived, uh, uh, and all you know the, the all the gods in the in the Hebrew world they just called it Sheol, and again some of you who've who've read some of like Psalms and stuff like that have come, probably come across that word, and it was basically just like where dead people went. It was the underworld, and it was below everything, okay. And then in between was everything else, so the land and the us and all the people. And then on top of that was the sky. And then above that was like the sun and the moon and the stars. And then that was like the top. And then above that was heaven, where God was. Right? And so there was this three-layered universe. And that was how they, that was how they understood everything. There's kind of water above everything because, you know, it rains. So there's got to be water up there. And there was water below everything because, like, you know, dig a deep enough hole. It's going to fill up with water. You go to the edge of the land. You, you get water, right? So, I mean, there was just water kind of above and below everything. And then above and below all of that was heaven and the underworld. And as best as they could tell, that's how the world was put together. And so what you can see when you begin to read through the Bible is you can see that this is actually reflected in a lot of their texts. So I gave you three examples. Um, the first one is from Jonah. Now, Jonah is a story that most of you are probably familiar with. It's a guy that God sends on a prophetic mission, and he, decide, uh, he decides he doesn't want to do it, and so he tries to run away from God, and so he gets on a ship and he goes out into the ocean, which again, next week we'll talk about why that was such an interesting decision. 
And then a storm comes, and the sailors can't figure out what's going on because it's clear it's not a natural storm. It's, it's something that's clearly sent by some kind of a deity. The sailors are all kinds of different religions, so they're trying to figure out whose god made who mad and who they can appease. And finally, Jonah cops to it and says, it's my, my god, my fault, everyone. If you throw me overboard, this will all quit. And so they throw Jonah into the ocean. That's the end of Jonah chapter 1. Uh, actually, the very end of Jonah chapter 1 is he gets eaten by a big fish. He hesitated, though, right? Before they threw him over. He thought down the Yeah, he's like, hmm. And we'll talk about a little bit next week about, I mean, because, again, for us, that's just kind of like a, there's a lot less at stake for us in that story than there was for Jonah. Like, when we read it, we miss some stuff that we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the seats. Okay. But a big fish swallows him. And then while he's in the fish, Jonah prays a prayer. And this is the first part of that prayer. Okay, and so I want to read it with you, and I want to look at, we'll flip back to that map that we had of the ancient world, and see just a little bit of, of how, what Jonah thinks is going on here. Okay, so Jonah says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down into the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more on your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountain. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. Okay. Now for us, we're like, yeah, he was in the ocean, and he was drowning, and a fish ate him, and so he's happy, right? But go back to your map of the ancient world. Or if you have a seat, buddy, one of you stay on Jonah, one of you go back to the map. Now notice that what's below the sea is the underworld. Okay? And you can hear that language in the prayer. Jonah says, I called to you from where? From the land of the dead. So what Jonah is saying here is that he died. I mean, when he was cast overboard, he, he went all the way to the roots of the mountain, which is the, I mean, that's the foundation, that's the pillars of the earth down there, and the, their gates shut over him forever. This is language of someone who has gone from the, the second tier, where life is, where God is, down into the underworld. And then, and then, miraculously, God brought him back from that. So there's, there's really strong resurrection language in this, that Jonah went from death back into life, which is why, in the New Testament and the Gospels, when the Pharisees demand that Jesus show them a sign, he says, you will get no sign from me except for the sign of Jonah. Because Jesus and Anyone in the ancient world who would have read the Jonah story would have understood that Jonah was talking about death and resurrection, going into, the, into Sheol, into the underworld, and coming back up into the, the, the world of life. We miss that because there's nothing at the bottom of the ocean except dirt. And if you saw Pacific Rim, giant space alien monsters of some kind, right? Um, but we, there's nothing down there, right? It's just, it's just the sea floor. And if you, if you somehow were able to dig through that, you get to lava, Right? Because for us, we know that, that wherever heaven and hell are, they're not, like, one's not in the core of the earth, and one's not, like, on a planet, like, somewhere 
somewhere like above above the sky, right? They they must. That's not how that's not how they're set up, which confused me greatly as a child. Oh, you just screwed up my whole worldview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Weekly World News used to always like once it seemed like once a year when they were still on the newsstands right there where you could check out at the supermarket. They're like a, the Hubble. I remember right after the Hubble was launched, right? They're like the Hubble spaceship or space telescope found heaven. And there was like a clearly photoshopped picture of space with like a flying, flying, glowing like palace. And it was like, oh, the Hubble found it. It was just really, really far away. But now we know, <laughs> you know, now we know where it is, everyone. Um, th- Tongue in cheek, like that's that's sort of what you're left with when you try to take the the physical language of the of the Bible, which which assumed this three tiered universe, and apply it to how we look at reality. You have to assume that heaven's basically like a few light years away, or something, and it's like a planet or something like that. Well, if it is, we haven't found it. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. Angie's saying, "Where is heaven?" Then that's a good question. Do you, hear, do you hear the Jonah language? Do you hear how, because we don't assume the same kind of a three, three-tiered universe, we miss, we miss what's going on in Jonah? We miss that this is actually like resurrection language. When he went into the depths of the ocean, mm-hmm. under the waves, yeah. the yep. he drowned, he died. That's the language he's That's using here. Said, yeah. Right? Okay. yeah. And, God brought it back and you'll see, again, I don't want to jump the gun too much on next week, but the sea is a place of death for the ancient world. I mean, that's really what we're going to be talking about next week. So whether he even physically drowned before he was in the fish and experienced a physical resurrection or not, like just being cast into the sea is, is death. I mean, you're, that's... Whether he went under... Whether he actually physically ended up dying, like that was, that was, that was what was going to happen. It would be sort of like... Um, uh, did anyone see Gravity, the movie Gravity? A few of you did. Did anyone see the trailer for it? Do you know what I'm talking about? The movie set on outer space with Sandra Bullock. You know when she gets cut off and she's spinning and spinning yeah, and there's just yeah. like, it's just her and space and nothing and you're like, well, she's, I mean, she's dead. <laughs> that's, that's the same kind of feeling that an ancient person would have had of being cast into the sea, which I just spoiled half the lesson for next week. So there you go. Um, watch Gravity this week if you can find it at the Dollar Theater. Um, but that's that same kind of feeling. It's like, it's like, well, he's dead. He's dead. He's in the sea. He's been cast into the sea. That's it. He's dead. And to be rescued from that is salvation. I mean, and, and it's resurrection. It's being, it's being returned from death back into life. Um, and what's really interesting, so I, again, maybe not everyone else read Jonah as much as I did as a kid or whatever. But for me, I always thought that the punishment for Jonah was being in the fish. And that basically he was like stubborn for three days and then finally like he prayed and said, okay, God, I'm tired of being in the smelly fish. I'm sorry. And then after he repented inside the fish, God like had the fish throw him up on land. But that's not what's happening here. Jonah considers the fish his salvation because this is what he's praying when he's inside the fish. And he's saying already right now I've been returned to life. And so there's this sense of uh, there's the sense of what was what was punishment was the being cast into the sea, and we'll, that will all make more sense next week. I promise. I sorry to keep pushing it off like that, but I want to have something to talk about with you next week. Okay, go on to Philippians chapter two. So Philippians chapter two is a hymn uh, that the early church sang. It's one of the oldest songs that we have that's distinctly Christian. 
in in the early in the early churches. Okay, um, and this is the one. This is the one that begins. We talked about it. If you're here on Christmas Eve, let the same attitude be used as in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to boast about, but he humbled himself and took the form. That's this whole. And so this is the therefore. Therefore, because Jesus became human, because he humbled himself and died and was raised from the dead. This is what God says, or this is what Philippians says next, the end of the song. It says, God elevated him, him being Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then here we have the three-tiered universe in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Okay, and so that was, that was the song's way of saying everyone everywhere, everyone in the whole universe. But they listed it that way because that's the way they saw reality. We would maybe say something like today, we would say something like, you know, on every galaxy, on every planet, or, you know, in, 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 in the whole cosmos or the whole universe. Or, you know, we would say something like, you know, er, er, some, some other way that we would have of expressing, like, no matter how far away you get, even there, Jesus will be worshipped. Something, you know, something like that. Make sense? okay like i said and, and here's the other thing if, if like angie this is like blowing your brain up a little bit we're going to come back to these things over and over and over because you don't you don't shift into this this other symbolic universe overnight right it takes it takes time of going back and seeing so everything we're doing tonight is going to help us next week and everything we do next week and this week will help us the week after that and all of these things are going to be building on each other so it's okay we'll you'll have lots of time to to work with these things where I want to show you where I think is really kind of cool and is sort of, I don't know, fun, is where, where we get into Jesus' ascension. So this is after Jesus' resurrection, and he is ascent, he's, a, he's going to heaven. So this is what happens in Acts 1, in verses 6 through 11. It says, When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Is that now? Now that you've raised from the dead? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is basically like his last conversation with them. And they keep saying, hey, will you, is, it, is it time? And he goes, well, none of your business. <laughs> He's like, what you need to do is wait and wait until you receive the Holy Spirit and then go out and be my witnesses, which if you know the rest of the book of Acts is what they do. But after he says this, then look what happens. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching him and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, we're going to try to do this in a way that's not confusing or infuriating to you. What is important about this story is where Jesus ends up. Okay? And where he ends up is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the universe as the rightful Lord of all of creation. Okay, now the what we have is why did he sort of just like go up and 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 up until they couldn't see him anymore? Well, it's because for them the way you got to heaven by going up, and after you went up for 
a while, you were in heaven. Again, we know today, because we've gone up and up and up and up and up until we got out of the sky, that that's not where heaven is. Right? When you get up there, you're just in space. And so we have a couple of options for talking about heaven in a meaningful way now. We can either kind of stick to the three-tier universe model and say, well, okay, maybe the universe is not infinite. Maybe, maybe it's just the sky is a lot bigger than we thought, and you just have to go, like, I don't know, a billion gajillion light years, and eventually you still get to some physical place where there's a gate with someone standing at it, letting people in and out. Okay? Maybe. My, my suspicion would be that that's not the case because I really want to believe Star Trek's true and that one day we'll be able to go really far, <laughs> you know. Um, what, what is important about heaven, at least to me, maybe for some people it's important that we be able to point to it on a map. It's not to me. What's important about heaven is that heaven is the, the throne room or the control room of the universe. That, that heaven is the place where God rules and where Jesus is sitting at his right hand. Um, even the language that you're hearing me use, ruling, sitting at his right hand, throne room, these are all metaphors that are used in the Bible for heaven because they pictured God as a king ruling because they had kings who ruled over nations. They had throne rooms. They had people who sat at right hands of kings, and that meant a particular something, right? We don't. Maybe if we were English and we still had a king that language would mean more, but Americans, you know, we're notoriously uh, anti-monarchy, right? And so, yeah, like, like the language of throne room and kingship and all that, it just doesn't carry a lot of weight for us. So I like to imagine if Jesus came today and the whole Jesus story were played out in our culture today, what would his ascension look like? You know, what kind of language would we use? Because do you even hear in the word ascension... We, it's a twofold meaning that works really well for this worldview, right? Because it, only, it not only means physically going up in the air, but it also means taking power, right? ascending a throne. And for them, Jesus was doing both. He was not only like going up in the air, but he was also ascending to the throne of heaven. When he was leaving the earth, he was actually taking over his, uh, the authority that he had been granted by virtue of his death and resurrection. USS Heaven, right? No. <laughs> Here's what I wonder. Now, now there's a couple things. There's a couple things that we need to, to be very clear about. First of all, wherever heaven is, it has to be a physical kind of a place because Jesus's resurrection body is a physical body. Okay, the, all of the Gospels, except for Mark, which doesn't have any resurrection appearances, Luke and Matthew and John, especially John, go out of their way so that we are very clear that Jesus' resurrection body is a physical body. He, 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 they, they, in fact, they're like, are you a ghost? And he's like, no, I'm not a ghost. Touch my hands. Like, stick your fingers in my crucifixion wounds. And everyone does it, I guess, because it's gross, but they did it. So it mattered to the scripture writers that we know that Jesus is not so it's heaven's not just like a spiritual place it's not like a it's not like a a ghost dimension where everyone just is like see-through and whatever right it's not uh it is a physical place and Jesus' physical body is actually there so the way our universe is set up today the way we understand it to work we talk about multiple dimensions right 
Um, most of you have probably heard talks of like multiverse and things like that. Um, what's that? Yeah, folds in the universe and wormholes and all these kinds of things that I'm not smart enough to understand. And there's a reason I became a pastor and not an astrophysicist. Right? But it is possible and meaningful for us to talk about physical aspects of our universe that are still inaccessible to us, much in the same way the ancient world did. I mean, even though they knew that heaven was above them, above the sky, they couldn't get there. right? And there, there are, in fact, some people who do get to go there. Um, there's a prophet named Elijah who gets taken to heaven in a divine chariot. And so he's like his, his sidekick, Elisha, is standing there watching in this, this fiery chariot descends from heaven. And he just gets in it and tosses the other guy his coat. And then it takes him and he gets to go up into heaven. Um, Paul talks about having a vision where he's taken up into what he calls the third heaven, that, that third space. Right? Like a DeLorean? You, may, I, I like to think it is. Right? Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> So, so we, we do still, in, in, our, in our scientific communities, we have ways of talking about physical aspects of our universe that are inaccessible to us. And it's, if, if, someone, if someone were to force me to talk about where I think Jesus' physical body is, where that heaven is, that's probably how I would want to try to talk about it. I'd want to say, well, you know, we talk about other dimensions or other kind of pocket universes or something like that. And these are, this is language that our, our best scientists use, right? And I, I not, cannot overemphasize enough how I'm not one of those best scientists, right? But if we were talking today about what, what does it mean meaningfully to talk about heaven, we would, we would have to talk about it in that way, where heaven is where God is exerting his authority over creation, right? Maintaining and sustaining creation. And it's somehow a part of our universe, just like that third tier was a part of their universe, but it's also at the same time somehow inaccessible to us for now. Because in the end, in Revelation 21 and 22, that third tier just kind of pops down onto the second tier and heaven and earth become one. And so again, we would talk about somehow the you know, merging of dimensions or some... Why did he come in clouds? Why did they talk about it that way? Because right here in Luke it said, you'll see him come the way you saw him go. Right? Come back, come back. Right. So, yeah. But that's all the same to you how right. you described it. Right. Absolutely. You didn't, you didn't travel up, you traveled out. Mm -hmm. The desert, the wilderness, mm -hmm. by land. Eventually it graduates to sea and mm -hmm. you survive in a boat. Yeah. That's how it traveled. Yeah. But up mm -hmm. would be interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and I, so I like to think, too, you know, we talk about Jesus' ascension in the Bible, but our people in our country don't ascend to power, right? They swear in. Right? I mean, right? That's, I mean, that's right? That's right? So, you, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me to imagine talking about Jesus swearing into office. Which is a sin. The Bible swears that it's a sin. Is that a sin? Because this is complicated. Yeah. So, so. Angie's, Angie's question is, we have this talking about swearing and oath-taking and all of that, and this is a great example of a symbol, in this particular case, the word swear, that means quite a few different things. It can mean a cuss, right? It can mean an oath. It can mean, yeah, it can mean a promise, all kinds of different stuff. So she's saying Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't swear oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay. Now, what he's talking about there is that in their culture, they had a practice 
where if you wanted to if you wanted someone to believe you you would say well i, I swear by god that this thing is true yeah. or i you know if as god is my witness you know let this thing be happen or i swear by heaven and earth or whatever and he's saying yeah he's saying you shouldn't do that he's saying you you anyone who is my follower should be a person of enough integrity that when you say yes people believe you and when you say no people believe you that should be how that should be what characterizes your language now there are people who would say that that should also extend to taking public office. I'm not one of those people. To me, the taking of public office and the whole ceremony of these swearing in and all of that, that feels like a different thing to me than like an interpersonal interaction where I should just be an honest person. To me, well, I was about to be snarky. To me, when someone swears in and they go through this ritual, that doesn't necessarily mean they're dishonest. I was going to say probably they're dishonest, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, I, was just, I was picking on politicians, what I shouldn't do. So... It's interesting to me to think about, you know, if Jesus had come today, would that be the language that, that was used? Because that's the language we understand. You know, we understand the swearing in into an office more than an ascension of a throne. I mean, again, we, like, intellectually understand the ascension of a throne. But we don't ever in our culture pause and watch someone take a throne. Right? That's not what we do. We, we see someone, we see people swear. I mean, think about the... Uh, uh, you know, the inauguration every four years, right? And there's all this pomp and circumstance and ceremony around watching the president swear in. And, and so I would imagine, like, that would be a way of thinking about what's happening in the ascension, that Jesus is swearing into office. Now, here's an interesting question, and it will tell you whether or not you want to come back to my class ever again. <laughs> Who cares? Because if you say, I don't care, well, you might be, in, you might be disappointed to the rest of this class. Um, I think it's interesting to, to go through these imaginative exercises to say what would, how would we talk about Jesus leaving earth if it were happening today because so often the Bible just seems weird and it just seems foreign and it just seems like something that doesn't really connect with my everyday life because of all of the language that's used in all of these other ways. It doesn't seem like does... Does a, a book that assumes a three-tiered picture of the universe have anything to say to me today in my world of galaxies and planets and solar systems? And I believe, yeah, it does. It really, really does. Like, just because they saw the world differently from the way I see the world doesn't mean that this book doesn't have anything to say. In fact, quite the opposite. Like, hopefully, it's clear that I love the Bible, and it's, like, my favorite book, and I spend lots and lots and lots of my life reading it and studying it and teaching it. Um, but I think it becomes more and more and more real and meaningful and applicable when we go through the process of saying, if I were there, how would I have heard it? Or if God were doing this thing today, how would he, how would he do it? What would it sound like? And then all of a sudden it becomes alive in a way that maybe it didn't before. Like, does it, does it do anything for you to imagine Jesus swearing into office? Maybe not. It doesn't? Okay. Why not? Because he's, he's bigger than that. He's bigger than an office. Well, he's the president of presidents. He's the king of kings. So when you say he's bigger than an office, well, right. He's, he swears the oath above all oaths. He's, he's, he's the installation of a ruler... Well, see again. This is what this is where this is this is this is the same problem you had with the king, though, right? Because a king had to be anointed by someone. Well, 
Who's going to anoint God? It's, it's the same problem, right? It's the same problem of what we're, what we're trying to do with our metaphors is say he's the one above everyone else. And anytime you get into all authority in our world is conferred by someone else. All authority. No, whether you're a king or a president or a judge or a priest or whatever, someone at some point said, now it's your show, right? And, and when we talk about God, that's where it breaks down. So, so that's, that's, that's the limitation, Beth, to your question. That's, that's just the limitation of the metaphor. And you have the same problem whether you talk about God as a king or a president or a prime minister or a father, Right. I mean, pick pick the metaphor that you want to use to say that God's the best and it breaks down at some point. But what we try to say when we say king of kings, lord of lords, prime minister of prime ministers, president of presidents, father of fathers, like we're trying to say the best, 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 best. And and we just have to we, we have to sort of struggle against the edge of our language because our language just doesn't get us where we want to go, which is the whole point of God being beyond us. Right. We just can't grasp. We can't get all the way around. But we can try, and we've been trying for 4,000 years, and that's what we're going to do in this class. We're going to be looking at how other people have tried, and then imagining how we can try, and some cool stuff will happen out of it. Amen. So, and what I, re- what I really, really, really hope, like the secret desire that I haven't told anyone about this class, <laughs> is I hope that this class actually helps you have better conversations about God with people who are not church people. Mm. I, hope, I hope that, because church language, like we just have our own language. Right, we do. And the way we talk about God gets really trapped inside of our church language, which at one point was everyday life language. Mm-hmm. It was. At one point, the way people talked about God was the way they talked about everything else, and then they wrote it all down, and then it became sacred, and you couldn't change it. And so now today, we live in a very different world with very different words and very different metaphors, and we, we don't allow ourselves to even imagine thinking about God, like trying to think about God the way we think about everything else. But if God is everywhere... If God is working everywhere, if God is in every aspect of our life, not just in church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, then the everyday language that we use should be able to get us somewhere with God. And if we, if we let God into those parts of our lives and we start to imagine how the language of astrophysics can help us talk about God or the language of engineering or the language of medicine or the language of pick whatever discipline you want, if we start to imagine how those things can maybe start to help us talk about God, then all of a sudden, talking about God just becomes a part of our everyday life, and it becomes very normal and organic, and spiritual conversations really are not as scary. Because all, I'm telling you guys, all kinds of people want to talk about infinity, and they want to talk about um, spirituality, and they want to talk about all of these things, and they're using language that doesn't come from the church. And so if you can be incarnational, if you can go into their world and into their language, you can begin to have conversations about Jesus with them, whether they even actually understand that or not. Because you're talking about the word who became flesh. And so that's my secret, secret hope. I don't know if we're going to get there. I'm going to try my hardest. Um, but like I said, this, this class is way on the margins for me. Um, uh, uh, when I was thinking about what I want to do for this session I really wanted to just do a Bible study. I was like, you know, I've never done a Bible study in the book of Exodus. It's a cool book. Like, well, let's just do that. And, and I, I thought to myself, you know what? But there's this other thing that I'm really more passionate about. And it's kind of scary for me because I just don't know if I can do it or not. Um, I've never tried anything like this before. And frankly, I know a lot of you are going to show up hoping for something that's going to be helpful and meaningful and not a waste of an hour and a half of your Wednesday night. 
And the last thing I want to do is waste your time. So I thought about, well, let's just stick with the safe Exodus stuff and have fun. It'll be fun. It'll be good. It'll be all that. But I just could not get away from this idea. And so uh, we might crash and burn, and it might be a beautiful explosion. Uh, <laughs> and you can say I was there when it just all fell apart and the wheels fell off. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope it doesn't. I hope we have a lot of fun. Um, and again, I'm going to work very, very, very hard. And I hope that you will come along in that journey with me. I hope you'll be really honest. That's Again, I really promise. I want you to be honest about what's working and what's not. Um, and and I, actually, that, uh, on the very, very back page, I give you like a bunch of different ways to contact me. Um, if you don't want to talk to me after class, if you want to chew on stuff for a little while, and then email me, Facebook me, tweet at me, text me, call me, whatever. Um, I mean, I, need to, I want to hear from you if stuff's not working, if stuff's confusing, if you leave kind of asking questions. Uh, I want to know that because, again, I'm really not up here to hear myself talk. Uh, I'm really up here to help you follow God better, to help you love God better, and to help you talk about God better. And if that's not happening, uh, I want to I figure out why, and I want to figure out if there's anything we can do about it, uh, if there's anything I can do about it. You know, I, w- I always want to be a better teacher, and I always want to be a better uh, uh, leader for you. And so uh, I, I need you, if that's not, help, if it's not working, I just need you to tell me. Um, so, yeah, Faith. Absolutely, because yeah. They're basically, whenever they talk about going to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. they always talk about going up to Jerusalem. And if you're coming from Antioch to Jerusalem, you know it's not a north-south mm-hmm. thing. You know it's not a directional thing. Right. And to me, it, it's the importance that Jerusalem oh, yeah. is God's throne mm-hmm. here on earth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so for him to send, it's just the showing that yeah, absolutely. That's that's all wrapped up in that as well. The same way we could talk about going up to Washington, D.C., right? I mean, we, we could talk about the nation, national capital that way. Um, though I will also tell you, Jerusalem's on the top of a hill, and if you've ever been in the Holy Land and walked, you know you go up to Jerusalem, and it is a, it's not a fun hike. Uh, they were in very, very good shape back then. But you're right. You're also right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Oh, and unquestionably in the scriptures, Jerusalem is the most important city for the Jewish people, um, especially once David makes it his capital city. Yeah, unquestionably, there's a, there's a, uh, a, sim- a symbolic import to saying going up to Jerusalem. It's not merely altitude. It's not merely uh, a geographical. Yeah, it's, it's very, there's very much like a symbolic sort of weight to it as well. So absolutely. Yep. Any other questions or thoughts tonight? Oh, we're going to pray. Don't worry. Yeah. Are we not talking about resolution? Resurrection? Resurrection? Okay. Uh, If you think about it, we'll... Yeah, yeah. Text me or whatever. Um, Okay, so I want to, like, let's go through the the schedule real quick. Um, So this was the first week. We just went in general introduction to Symbolic Universe. Uh, so n- starting next week, we're going to go through some specific symbols or some specific like cultural ideas and then try to link them up to modern day. So next week, like I said, we're going to talk about the sea, space, and midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> next week, we're going to, or the week after that, it'll be the temple and the house. Uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about gods, idols, and the fame monster. If we have any Lady Gaga fans or Eminem fans in here, that'll be a good week for you. Um, 
Week five, we're going to talk about communion and tables and Katniss. So Hunger Games fans rejoice. Um, week six, we're going to talk about the exodus, freedom, the civil rights movement, some stuff like that. The week after that, we're going to talk about politics, kingdom, empire, nation, those kinds of that kind of language. The week after that, we're going to talk about losing my religion, which is going to be about the exile and what it, what it looks like when your entire world falls apart and God leaves. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good up, up, uplifting week, which is just in time for Ash Wednesday. On March 5th, we do not have any Wednesday night things going on except for the combined worship gathering. If you've never been to Ash Wednesday here, don't use it as a skip week. It's really, really a great week. You won't want to miss it. Uh, then the week nine, we'll be back for delivery. We'll be talking about salvation and childbirth and new birth and all kinds of birth imagery in there. And then the last week, we're going to do a wrap up where we kind of try to pull it all together and do some really, really awesome stuff. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be the crash or burn week. Hopefully we'll fly. Uh, so uh, if there's no other questions or comments or thoughts, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, yeah, if you guys if you guys are interested in any of the stuff ahead of time, email me, um, and then I'll just put together an email list. I don't have that now, so I'll, we'll get that. Um, oh, and then the other thing I wanted to tell you is I, if you didn't notice this big silver ball up here is a microphone. I'm recording each week, and then I put them on my website. So that uh, that email, the website address I give you right there. Uh, each week, probably about 10 o'clock at night, uh, it'll go up on my website. And then if you have iTunes or some kind of podcasting thing, you can look it up on there or just listen to it on my website. So if you have to be gone a week, uh, you can get on there. You can download the handouts that I make for you, uh, and you can listen to them so that you don't miss a week and you can get caught up in all of that. So um, good. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? If not, I want to pray for us, and then we can be dismissed. I do want to say thank you, guys. This is a... This is a swing for the fences, and we'll see. I really appreciate your time, uh, and uh, I think it's, I am confident it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, this is a kind of a, a passion project of mine, and I am excited for you guys to be a part of it. So let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the opportunity that we have to come and to consider your scriptures and, and the things that you want to teach us. We're so thankful that you are not merely a God of 2,000 years ago, but that you're a God of the ordinary plain everyday aspects of our life is things that seem so unimportant and so secular but that you care about them and that you're working in them and that we can learn what it means for you to be in every part of our lives and not just of our lives but of the people in the world who don't know you who don't know that you love them who don't know that you offer them a way out of death and into life and so we pray as we move through this class that you would help us to know your scriptures even better that you would give us eyes that can see uh, how your people have seen the world in history and what that means for your texts and how they, how they come to life for us today. And that ultimately the end result of all of this is that we would be a more faithful picture of you in this world and that, that the people in our lives who don't know you would, would know your love for them through our love for them and that we would be ultimately more able to tell the world about you and to be a picture of you. Uh, that's what we want. That's what we really, really want. And so uh, help us to be mindful and thoughtful as we work through these weeks. And we, we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week.